0: Okay, find uh, 1 Corinthians <coughs> and <coughs> chapter 10. Now as as we get to chapter 10, what, what I want to to show you is that chapters ten through to fourteen in one Corinthians are a kind of a natural clumping all dealing with the same thing. And that what we're gonna see is is that that what these chapters have in common is that Paul is turning his attention in the letter to what does a church do when it meets each week. And so he's turning to answer issues that have arisen out of what churches do or what the Corinthian church was doing uh, when they got together. And of course the great value of these chapters is that it tells us so much about what the early church did when it met. And uh, I mean, we, we know they met in houses, they were small. And these chapters give us the reason why churches were small and why therefore they never needed to move out of houses. Because what we're gonna see is that Paul is addressing primarily the abuse of the various aspects of when a church gets together. Because basically if something could be done wrong, the Corinthians were doing it all right. So in correcting the abuses that arise out of what a church did when it came together, that tells us a great deal about what a church did when it came together. And what we're basically going to see is, um, as we do here, because it's what Scripture teaches, that there were two two aspects when a church will come together, as as the whole church, on a Sunday. There was completely open worship and sharing together, was just, you know, kind of, as we'll see when you come together, each one has, and there was a full meal. They, they had a meal, which was the Lord's Supper. And as we go through this, we're gonna see the way that um, the early churches actually met. And you'll see how all this kind of holds together. Now, in, in chapter 10, what Paul immediately does is he starts off by dealing with abuses that surrounded the Lord's Supper in the Corinthian church. Now, it took basically two forms firstly it took the form that uh, some of the people in the church and these would have obviously been the converted corinthians okay um they they were still going down to the temple of aphrodite to the love feasts that were at the temple so even though they got converted and even though they were each week you know sort of being part of the Lord's Supper, the love feast in the church, they were still going down to the Temple of Aphrodite, where it was kind of a drunken orgy, and you know, sort of like the priestesses were there, and it was immoral and everything. And so, in chapter 10, we know that Paul's beginning to deal with the Lord's Day and what happens on a Sunday because he immediately dives into this. And what he does is that uh, you know, he reminds them that everything in the Old Testament is a picture of the truth of the new covenant that we've been brought into. And he, he takes them back and he says, look, you know, when our forefathers, i.e. Israel, you know, went through the sea with Moses, they were baptized. And he's, you know, into Moses, and he's immediately reminding them, look, everything in the Old Testament, particularly with Israel, is a picture of the truth of the Church. And, uh, as I often like to put it, think of it like this. If the New Testament um, is, is, is kind of the script, then the Old Testament is the movie and in the old testament although it's historical it's completely historical but we see new testament truths or doctrine acted out for us in history so old testament history illustrates the truth of the the teaching the truth the doctrine of every aspect of us being part of the church in the new covenant and uh, and what what Paul immediately does is he takes them back to the time when you remember Moses was was up in a, you know sort of mount sinai getting the ten commandments and israel down below they had this this pagan love feast, didn't they 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 made the golden calf, and uh, you know, and they were you know kind of immoral, and it was you know it was an absolute disgrace. And as a result of that, thousands of them were killed. God judged them, and many of them died. Now, of course, the connection, as we keep going through this, is that the Corinthians were experiencing. Some of them had died, and that was God's judgment because they were abusing the love feast. Okay. So what we've got here is that Paul is kind of setting the scene, and he's saying, look, there was a time in Israel's history when they were so abusing, eating together, as the Lord's people, that God judged them. And we're going to see that he first of all turns his attention not to the abuses that were taking place at the actual love feast each week, He first of all turns his attention to those in the Corinthian church who were still going down to the temple of Aphrodite for the immoral love feast there. And of course that was all idolatry. And and, and he goes in verse 11, he says, look, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So he says, this thing that happened in the Old Testament is a picture of what's happening to you now. And you've got to understand that you you cannot mix following the Lord with worshipping idols. And he then goes down, and we get this lovely verse, when he says, Look, no temptation has come except that which is common to man. And God is faithful in that he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you're tempted, he will always provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. And what he's basically saying, Israel had no excuse for what they did back then. But he says... But my goodness, we haven't got any excuse either if we're doing this because God always provides us the grace with a way out. And so, having said that, in verses 14 down to verse 22, we get this. This he says, "Look, my dear friends, flee from idolatry." And he goes on. He says, "Look, when you come together for the Lord's supper, that that cup, that that one cup that you drink, that is fellowship with Jesus. That is." the Lord's table, that is his meal, that's our fellowship together and with him. And he says, look, that bread, that one loaf, that is our fellowship with Jesus. That is our unity, that meal of unity. And he says, but my goodness, but you're going down to the temple, to this idolatry thing. And he says, look, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. He says, you cannot have a part in both the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And he's saying, well, look, you're coming to the Lord's table you're, each week you have the Lord's Supper, that meal as the church, but then at other times you're going down and you're having a love feast which is participating in a meal that is in honour of demons. Uh, and he says, Wow, absolutely no way. And he says, um, Are you trying to arouse the Lord to jealousy? Because he's saying, if you do stuff like that, my goodness, the Lord will sort you out. And of course, as we move on to see later, that was happening and, and, and some of them were ill and some of them had actually died. And of course, he, here we're immediately seeing that when the church came together um, each Sunday, the first day of the week, they had a meal together. And, and and Paul is correcting the abuse here of a full meal. And as we keep going through this, we'll see the other abuses he's, he's correcting as well. Now, from verse 23 onwards, he he kind of... Um, he, he goes back to where he was in, a, in a chapter 8 and dealing about, look, what do you do with food offered to idols, and, you know, and he establishes that, look, everything is permissible, but on the other hand, don't do anything to make anyone stumble. And of course, he goes back to food because that's what he's dealing with. He's dealing with a love feast. And, uh, you know, and obviously, uh, what meats you could and couldn't buy in the market... Uh, related because that would be what you were bringing to the love feast. So obviously it related there, but also he deals again, look, if you're going to unbelievers' houses for a meal, and again the assumption is that we are, that we do have ongoing social relationships with non-Christians. He says, look, you know, don't, don't worry if that food has been offered to idols, you, you be free to eat that. It's no big deal, unless it's going to cause a problem to someone there. Then it is a big deal. So, so again, there he's, he's dealing with the, the whole issue of, of, of food now when he, uh, he he ends that section, and uh, we get verse one of chapter eleven, and he says, "Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ and Paul would often say this because everything he was teaching, everything he was doing, what he the way he lived, he got it from Jesus, so in a sense elsewhere he's you know he's hes saying, "Look, imitate me as I imitate Jesus and there's a tremendously important verse in verse two because he then says And now he's moving on to other aspects of questions that have been raised in regards to the Lord's Day. He says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. Now that shouldn't be the word teaching. That's not the Greek word for doctrine. It's the Greek word for tradition. And and it means practice, repeated practice. And here, in the context of dealing with the abuses that arose from what the Corinthian church were doing each time, here we get this incredible statement that Paul says, but I praise you for at least... Having a full meal, I praise you that you are having this open time, even though you're abusing it, you're doing right in observing the traditions I've passed on to you. And of course, this is the exact opposite to what Scripture elsewhere calls the traditions of men, which go against the traditions that the law wants. And so here, this is one of the verses where we can see that it's not kind of, you know, sort of like, oh well, meet as a church, how you like that somehow, what's in the Bible, it's just descriptive it's not prescripts. if it's not saying we've all got to do it, that's just how they did it. Well, no, not at all. Paul praised them for doing what he passed on to them. And what he passed on to them was that when they met together, it would be in houses, they were therefore small, they would have a meal together, and as we're going to see, they would just have completely open sharing, no one leading it. In other words, no, no services. And what he moves on to now is, is, is the thing about head coverings. This, this again had you know, arisen, they'd written to him about it. And of course, where the problem arose here is that you had converted Greeks and converted Jews who came from different religious backgrounds. But, um, but basically what it boils down to is that it's the question, look, should we be veiled? When we worship, should men be veiled, should women be veiled, who's right and who wrong? You know, I mean, the, the Greeks weren't, the Jews were, and, 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 and there's all this kind of thing. And basically what it boils down to, my understanding of it, is Paul is saying, well, no, actually no one should be veiled. Because he says elsewhere that we all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord. Veils speak of separation. And of course in Jesus, there's no separation. So he's saying, no, of course no one should be veiled in worship. But, he says, it is right that women should cover their heads, and that is a sign to the angels that they are under the authority of their husbands. And so that family order that that God has built into nature needs to be reflected in the coming together of the church, that women should have this covering on their head. And my understanding is that what that covering is, is long hair. So therefore women should have long hair and men should therefore have short hair. Not necessarily talking about that women have got to have hair down to their back sides any more than men have got to have short back and sides. But the point is a woman's hair should clearly be long and feminine in the same way that a bloke's should should clearly be shorter so he couldn't be mistaken for a woman from any particular angle. And so Paul deals with that and in doing so makes very, very clear that this this isn't anything to do with the fact that women are inferior to men, it has to do with the order in the family that the man is the head of the woman, but he says in the same way that God is the head of Christ. So, I mean, if if God is the head of Christ, does that mean that Christ is inferior to God? That's ridiculous, he is God. And the fact that the woman is under the husband's authority, doesn't mean she's inferior. That's ridiculous. It's she has a different role. That's all. And Paul says this should be reflected when uh, you come together. And there's um, a, a kind of a fascinating verse again in verse 16. Because just rounding this off. And I mean, I, I have every understanding for those who do think that it is an actual head covering. You know, like like you know, an actual you know sort of scarf on the head. I understand why people conclude that. Um, you know, that's, that's not my understanding, but, but, but I can see how people reach that. But in verse 16, look what he says. He says, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, in actual fact, you could translate that, we have no such practice. But the point is, just lay aside for one moment what he's actually meaning. He then says, nor do the churches of God. Now, what that tells us is, that whatever it was here that Paul is teaching, He was saying, well, it's what all the churches observe, and if you're going against it because you're being contentious, well, just be aware you're on your own, mate. So the point is, and they understood full well then, I mean, it might be a bit obscure to us, but it wasn't to them because they actually, you know, had Paul there in person. They could say, hey, Paul, is it long hair? Is it, you know, sort of head coverings? But the point is that that whatever it was, Paul taught the same thing in every church. So again, this idea that our oh, world well, just goes the Lord leads you and different churches are going to be doing different things. I mean, in some regards, yes, of course they're going to be doing different things. But when it comes down to basically that, that, that kind of what a church ought to be doing when it meets, how a church is set up, how a church organizes itself, what it does when it comes together, all this is set in Scripture. You know, it's not for us to say, oh, well, okay, they they had the Lord's Supper as a full meal. Ah, junk that. We'll have a little bread and wine service instead. Or, oh, yeah, no, when they came together, they kind of, uh, you know, they they just had a time of sharing where everyone was free to take part. Yeah, that's what they did, but no, we don't like that, so we're going to do it differently and have services. We're not free to do that. Um, Paul taught one way, and the apostles, the other apostles, they taught one way of doing church, and uh, we see it in Scripture. They expected everyone to do what they said and uh, I remain convinced that they knew better than the people who came after they died and said, ah, we've got a better way of doing it. Uh, their way, not just the best way, it's the only way, but uh, Satan came along and, and got people believing that you could do it other ways and, and that will be okay. Now, he then moves on and, uh, and he says now, in the following directives, I have no praise for you for your meetings do more harm than good. Now, he's gonna dive in and he's gonna deal with the things that are wrong that are taking place when they come together. He's dealt with the fact that that, that at times other than when the church meets, some of them are going down to the Temple of Aphrodite. But now he's going to deal with the actual abuses that are occurring when the church comes together. And again, immediately, he dives in on the problems with the love feast, with the Lord's Supper. And again, when we get this this phrase, the Lord's Supper, in the Greek, the word translated supper is daipnon. It means the full meal. That is all it means. In, in the whole of the history of the Greek language, it has never meant anything else, you know, and, and, and to make out that it does, is like saying a car can be an aeroplane in certain circumstances, it's just wrong use of words, this was a meal that they were having, and he was saying, look, when you come together, this, this is the meal that is your unity, the one cup, the one loaf. And and you are the body of Jesus. You're supposed to be discerning the body in right relationship with each other. And the whole push behind the love feast, it is the new covenant meal. And what we're saying is, if we're right with Jesus because of what he's done on the cross, then in order for that to be a reality in our lives, we must be right with other people too. Now, obviously, there are times when we fall out with people as a result of our sin. Well, okay, we know that happens. Repentance puts it right. Repentance, going to that person and confessing your sin towards them, puts it right. They forgive you, no problem. But in the Corinthian church, there was all manner of division amongst them that they weren't putting right. And one of the big divisions was between the rich and the poor. And one of the things that's happening is that the rich were getting there earlier and and of course they would have been bringing most of the food. In fact, it's very possible that some of the people in the church would have been so poor it was the only decent meal they got every week. And what's happening is that the, the richer people are getting there and they're scoffing all the food down before some of the poorer people who probably had to work longer hours because Sunday, what, the first day of the week wasn't a day off for them then. They met after work, alright? And, uh, you know, and basically Paul's answer to that is, look, if all you're doing is coming along, if, if, if all you're thinking about is your stomach, if that is all you're thinking about, then that is not the Lord's Supper. I mean, you're doing the right thing, but because you're doing it for the wrong reason, you're invalidating it. And he says, it's not actually the Lord's Supper you lot are eating because of the way you're behaving. And he says, look, if all you're thinking about is your stomach, he says, you go home and eat. And if that's what you're thinking about, you stay at home and you, you feel your stomach there. And another problem that was happening was um, that they were getting drunk. And, and you know, so, so, you know, sort of like the one cup. Was, was 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 perhaps being being taken more liberally than it should have been. They were literally getting drunk. And of course, the point is, he's already dealt with the fact that some of them have been going down to the Temple of Aphrodite for the drunken love feast there. And now he's saying, you're turning the church love feast into the same sort of thing. And he says, this is an absolute disgrace. Th- they were being selfish, they were only thinking of themselves, and that is the exact opposite to what the Lord's Supper celebrates. The Lord's Supper is... is the meal of our unity together in Jesus and it's when we examine ourselves not, not in regards to our relationship to Jesus individually, we should be doing that all the time, we don't wait till we get together on a Sunday for that, but it's examining what is my relationship with my brothers and sisters who are here is, is there anything I've got to put right that I haven't put right and of course this is absolutely at the heart and this is why Paul reminds them, look, when Jesus was at you know, that last supper with the disciples and again it was a full meal, it was, he says, look, this is, this is you know my body, my blood. I'm gonna die on the cross. This is the new covenant. It's for the forgiveness of your sins. So therefore you must be in, in, in an attitude of forgiveness towards each other and being willing to ask forgiveness when you have sinned against somebody else. And he actually says, look, What you've been doing, you've been eating and drinking judgment on yourself. Remember in in chapter 10, what did he take them back to? When Israel had that drunken gluttonous love feast, and God judged them. And he says, this is why some of you are weak and ill, and a number of you have fallen asleep. And then he says, but if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. So the point is, this is why we're to examine ourselves. If I'm in wrong relationship, if I've got undealt with sin in my heart against somebody, you know, that I've sinned against them and they know it. I'm not talking about something they, they're not even aware of. But, you know, if, if, if I'm in that situation, I should judge myself. You know, Paul's saying, "Don't." you know, eating that love feast is, is that final moment when, I mean, sometimes I say, we've got a maximum of seven days to be out of fellowship with each other. Once we come to that love feast, that's it. You see, it's the, it, it, it's the thing that pulls you up. And, and we've got to realise, if we don't judge ourselves, my goodness, God will. And for them, crumbs, they were actually getting ill. Some of them had even died. And, uh, you know, and so he's, he, he winds up and he says, look, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. He doesn't say don't eat. Some people say Paul's saying don't have a love feast. That's ridiculous. He's no more saying don't have a love feast than when he turns to the abuses of the gifts of the Spirit. He says don't have the gifts of the Spirit. He's just telling them how to do it right. So he says, look, if anyone's hungry, he should eat at home. If that's all you're coming for, if you're so hungry that you can't wait for everyone to get there before you eat, stay at home, all right? And he says so that when you meet together it may not result in judgment. And so there's Paul saying, hey look, this is how you get the love feast right. He's reminding them this is what it's all about. And of course what it's telling us so very very clearly is that when a church came together, when they were influenced by the apostles, as opposed to the early church fathers who came later, they met together and they had a main meal of the day together, alright? Now, in chapter 12, he moves on to deal with the gifts of the Spirit, and we're going to see now the other area of abuse that was going on. Because the Corinthians were were kind of crazy about the gifts of the Spirit, as we're going to see, they were pretty obsessed about it, especially in regards to tongues. And you've got to realise that when we come to these chapters, we're dealing with what the Church does when it comes together. And remember, the church would come together in a relatively small numbers in someone's house. Now, one of the things that has gone completely wrong with the gifts of the Spirit and the charismatic movement today, traditionally, has has, has been that it's in the context of Christian gatherings that not only are not based on the Bible, they're the opposite of the Bible. They're big gatherings with big leaders up the front. Now, what happens is that if the gifts of the Spirit are located where they should be in a Biblical Church, then the two greatest dangers with the charismatic movement are going to be averted. What are the two dangers with the charismatic movement? Well, I would say you've got domination and manipulation. You've got the big leaders up the front, pushing people over, psyching people up, doing the big God's told me to tell you thing. And, and then people start, you know, oh wow, big man of God, God's speaking to him. Now, in a Biblical Church, you don't get that because there isn't an upfront to be upfront. There aren't any big leaders. When you come together, each one has. It's the Lord moving through everyone gathered, not just one or two who are the acknowledged leaders. Therefore, in a small group without big leaders, you're far less likely to have Satan get in and do a big domination and manipulation thing, all right? Because the, it's just the wrong setting for it. And the other thing that goes wrong in the charismatic movement is you get hysteria. You see, the leaders up front whip everyone up and then everyone gets whipped up and they do what do the most ridiculous things, as directed and psyched up by the leaders. But to have hysteria, you need big numbers. The very thing that early church didn't have. I mean, they had big numbers in the sense there'd be loads and loads of Christians in an area, possibly, but they'd all be part of lots and lots of little churches. And when they came together on a Sunday, you were just together in a small church, just like we are. Now, there might have been another 50 in a radius of... Three miles, wonderful. But the point is, when the gifts were being used, there weren't sufficient numbers for hysteria. And, and, and you see, the trouble with the charismatic movement is it's using the gifts in a totally unbiblical situation. It's using them in a situation they weren't designed for, and which actually positively make them dangerous. Big leaders up the front, And lots of people present giving in to hysteria, okay? And so it's important to realize that these verses are taken so out of context. When we look at the gifts of the Spirit in in, in chapter 12 and chapter 14, what's the context? A small group of believers meeting as a church in someone's house. Having a meal together and having a time when everyone is sharing together. So, so, so let's have a quick look. He, he says, look, I don't want you to be ignorant about the gifts of the Spirit. He says, once you were led astray to dumb idols. And I think he says that because through the gifts of the Spirit, God speaks. Idols are dumb because they don't exist. But God does exist, and he speaks to his people. And it's partially, primarily, it's through his word. But nevertheless, he speaks through the gifts. And then he goes on and he says, look, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. Different kinds of service, but the same Lord. Different kinds of working, but the same God works All of them in all men. Now, I want you to get the push here. He then goes on to, so he says, the same Spirit works all of them in all men. Now, he says, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Just underline that, to each one. It's expected that each one is being used in the gifts of the Spirit when a church comes together. That's the exact opposite of having a service with people leading it. All right. Then he lists the actual gifts themselves and he talks about the word of wisdom, word of knowledge um, and uh, faith, um, healings, miraculous powers, prophecy, discernment of spirits, speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues. He goes through them, but he says all these are the work of one in the same spirit and he gives them to each one just as he determines. Again, the push. The push here is twofold. It's up to God what happens, but he's going to do it through each person. Again, Paul expected each person to be being used by the Lord when the church came together. And then he reminds them, he says, look, you're a body, you're the body of Christ. Now, obviously, every believer is part of the body of Christ in the sense of throughout space and time and all that. But he's talking about the the Corinthian church was like, he says, you're like a body. and. What he goes on to say in verses 14 to 19, and just, just kind of get, get the idea, he's going to talk to two different types of Christian now. And in verse 14, he says, Now the body is not made up of one part, but many. Now get this, if the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, he says, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And he says, if the ear should say, I'm not an eye, I, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason be, cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? Etc. Etc. Who is he addressing there? He's addressing anyone who is sitting there thinking I'm just an ear, I'm not an eye, I haven't got anything to do here. Paul's saying no, rubbish, the body needs every part to be functioning. Now what's the push there? The push there is look, those of you who are reticent, those of you who are likely to think oh, you know, I don't have the gifts that other people have, that God isn't going to use me. Paul's saying, no, of course God wants to use you. I've just written to you, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Of course God wants you to participate. So there's the push, each person. Now, in verse 21, he turns to another type of Christian, and he says, ah, but the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And what Paul's saying there, he's saying, ah, but there are others of you, the vocal ones, the ones who have no problem sharing and praying and bringing a teaching or a prophecy. And he says, right, now you have got to make sure that you're not thinking, all you need is me. So there he's talking to anyone who might end up dominating. And, and, and he's likened the weaker parts of the body to those who are quieter and who are likely to hold back. And he then goes on and he says, look, the parts of our body, there are parts that we treat with special modesty, all right? We give far more attention. I mean, how can I put it? You, you are far more likely to miss the fact um, that, 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 I mean, sort of, you know, that sort of you've forgotten to put one glove on on a cold day. You're more likely to miss the fact that you've forgotten to put a glove on than that you've forgotten to put your trousers on or something. <laughs> you see? Because he's saying, look, there are parts of our body, they're, they're the ones that we consider that, you know, they're not really meant to be on show, and we give them greater honour. We take more care to look after those parts of the body. And what he's saying is, look, when a church comes together, the main consideration you've got to be giving is how can we bring the quiet ones forward? That's what he's saying. He's saying you've got to have an atmosphere, you've got to have a setup where the quiet ones are given the most honour. And of course, one way to guarantee that the quiet ones aren't going to step out and bring something is for the noisy ones to just keep doing it all and dominating. Can you see? So you've got to have a setup where everyone is being encouraged to take part. It doesn't mean that the noisy ones can't take part of, well, of course they can, but it must never be that they're doing it all. And the whole push is, Paul's saying, look, come on, each one of you must be doing and moving in the way that God wants to move through you. Okay, and that, that's the whole push. Now, isn't it ridiculous to apply this to a church service where you've got lots of people in a religious building with someone leading from the front? The whole push behind this is that it is wrong for any one person to be dominating. And yet traditionally when Christian churches get together they've built a system that is in essence someone dominating from the front and most people having no choice but to not take part except to say amen and sing him." So again we see there that, that traditionally since the early church fathers the Christian church has not just done it differently from the New Testament but done it the exact opposite of the New Testament. So what we're seeing is when a church came together in New Testament times, they'd be in someone's house, Um, they would have a meal together and they would have a time of sharing where everyone was free to take part as the Spirit led them and where everyone was positively encouraged to take part. Now, what's the opposite of that? Well, meeting in a religious or public building, um, having lots of people with one person or a very small group of people who do it all from the front, everyone else not participating in any significant way, and then you top it off with a, a service with bread and wine. That is the opposite to what the early church did. And and, and Paul says, look, if one part suffers, every part of the body suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices. And he says, look, when you come together, again, if one part of the body is having a bad time, well, you should all feel it. Or if one part of the body is really being blessed and rejoicing, you should know about it. How? Well, because there ain't that many of you. What a ridiculous thing to say if Paul planted churches and said, hey, you know, get together, the more the merrier. Let's pile them into big buildings and have services. No! The whole point is this is small, this is intimate. And of course, in the early church, when a church got too big to comfortably do this, by then they were too big to be in a house, so they became two churches. That's how the early church grew. And then Paul carries on in, in 1 Corinthians 12, and, you know, and he says, and of course there are different kinds of ministries you know, that go wider than maybe one church, and he talks about apostles and, and prophets, and he says, look, everyone's got different gifts, and everyone must do what they're called to do. But the point is, everyone must do what they're called to do, uh, regardless of what it is. And, and then he says, and now I will show you the most excellent way. Now, we've got to remind ourselves, all right, we've already seen that the Corinthian church is not a very loving church. I mean, they're freezing the poor out of the love feast, okay, you know, eating all the food before the poor get there, that's not a very loving church, is it? So they've got a real problem with love. Now, the other problem that we're going to be seeing Paul correct in 1 Corinthians 14 is that they were obsessed with the gifts of the Spirit. And in fact, they were getting together and they were just all speaking in tongues out loud and just, just going absolutely bananas. And in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is going to lay out the ground rules for engagement. So when you come together, the fact that you haven't got someone leading from the front, the fact it's not a set service or anything like that, doesn't mean it's a free-for-all either. And Paul lays out the ground rules. So the point is, in 1 Corinthians 13, he's dealing on the one hand with he's dealt with their unlovingness, you know, that they're not sharing together, and he's moving, he's starting to move on now to deal with their obsession with the gifts of the Spirit. Now, what he does in verses 1 to 3 of, one, of chapter 13, he reminds them, look, you can have all the gifts of the Spirit you like, You can have all the supernatural power you like, but if you haven't got love, it's nothing. That's what he says. And think of it like this. If you've got the gifts of the Spirit without love, what are you doing? You're portraying the power of God without the character of God. And if you do that, think about it. That's misrepresenting God. It's virtually blasphemous. When God wanted to have a pithy little thing in Scripture to define him, what was it? God is love. You will never find a pithy little God is power. The Bible says he's powerful, but it never says that God is power in that way. God is love. And to to present people with God's power without presenting them his love lived out amongst us, Paul says a complete waste of time. He's not saying the gifts of the Spirit are a waste of time. He says the gifts of the Spirit without love are a waste of time. Then in verse 4 through to 7, he defines what love is, patient, kind you can read re- through that, basically the fruit of the Spirit, just kind of brought out in a slightly different way than in Galatians. And then he, he, he does something really strange. He then goes on, he says, look, love will never fail. He says, love's always going to be there. And he says, faith and hope are always going to be there as well. And then he says, um, he says, but prophecies are going to cease. And he, he says, tongues are going to be stilled. And he said, there, there won't always be words of knowledge. And, um, and he says, When perfection comes, these gifts are going to pass away. And then he says a really weird thing. He says, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. But then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I fully know. What on earth is he going on about? Well, he says a time is going to come when the gifts of the Spirit are going to be gone. And he says that time is when he sees face-to-face, when the perfect comes, when he knows as he is known. Now, that time for you and I is going to come either if the rapture happens, now, or when you drop dead, right, and go to heaven. And what is Paul saying about this thing about this childish things? I put, when I grew up, I put childish things away. He's addressing a church that are obsessed with the gifts of the Spirit. I mean, they are obsessed with the gifts of the Spirit. And he's reminding them, look, love is what matters not. He's not saying stop using the gifts, but he's saying you have got the gifts totally out of proportion. Love has got to be brought into the mix. And then he says, look, what you've got to realize is he says, love is going to be there forever. When you're with the Lord, you're still going to love the Lord and the Lord is still going to love you. And we're all still going to love each other. So he says, love will carry on forever. But he says, where will the gifts be then? Well, for you, nowhere, because you won't need them anymore. The gifts of the Spirit are tools with which to dig a garden. Now, if there's no garden to dig, you don't need any tools, do you? Now, can you imagine hanging around heaven you know, with spades and shovels hanging around our necks? It's ridiculous. And then he shifts the picture, and he says in exactly the same way, look, my toys meant everything to me when I was a kid, but they don't now. And he says, look, here you are obsessed with the gifts of the Spirit, thinking that they're it. He says they're merely tools. When you're with the Lord, or if, if the rapture happens, when you're with the Lord, the gifts will be of complete irrelevance to you. They'll just be like your toys when you were a little boy in the nursery, little girl in the nursery. He says, just get it in perspective, will you? And will you realize the gifts are there to do a job? Love is there to be our existence throughout eternity. He says, so what matters most? Love. Love will be there forever. Faith will abide forever. Hope will abide forever. But the gifts are going to pass away when you don't need them anymore. Simple as that. So, while you're down here, you need the gifts. When you're with the Lord, you won't need the gifts. right? And of course, eventually, when when the Lord folds history up and and it's all done and and, and, and there's the new universe and all believers are in it, we won't need the gifts of the Spirit then either. No one's going to need healing. No one will need to speak in tongues and edify themselves because how, how much more edified do you want to be than having Jesus face to face? So Paul's just saying, look, get the gifts into perspective for heaven's sake. And now, when we come into chapter 14, we actually move on to where Paul starts to lay out the ground rules for the use of the gifts. And what we can see from this is that they're they're just going bananas. Uh, Not only are they speaking in tongues without interpretation in public, but they're all doing it at the same time. And and everyone's prophesying at the same time. And it it is pandemonium. It it is complete and utter pandemonium. And um, so he says, look, he says, what you've got to understand with, with this tongues lot, he says there's a massive difference between tongues as used personally by you in your own prayer time. And Paul said, I speak in tongues more than you all. Paul spoke in tongues. But he said, that, that, that's me speaking to God. He says, but what on earth is the use of me speaking out loud in tongues when the church gets together, you know, around at someone's house on, on, on Sunday, what on earth is the point of me speaking in tongues unless it's going to be interpreted? That is the public use of private tongues, and he says that's a no-no, and he says it's a complete waste of time. You know, I mean, you know, if I mean, let let's say that I didn't only speak English. Let's say I spoke Swahili, right? And uh, so you know that I speak English and Swahili, and uh, but none of you speak Swahili, okay? So I come along one Sunday, and I've got a little teaching that I want to bring, or a little little exhortation, a little hey, look what happened to me during the week, and I do it in Swahili. You say that's just silly. Because we can't understand. And Paul says that's what you're doing with tongues. Now, yeah. he says, if you're going to speak in tongues because God is leading to you and someone's going to interpret, that's fine. All done decently in order. But all this going away in tongues, he says, it's absolutely crazy. And he says as well, look, if an unbeliever comes in, and Paul assumed that there'd be times when unbelievers were there, all right? He says, look, if they come in and just hear you all speaking in tongues with no interpret, they're going to think you're mad. He says, no, but prophecy, ah, now prophecy, you see, tongues is us speaking to God. And the interpretation of a tongue will therefore be a prayer or praise or something like that. But a prophecy is God speaking to us. Now He says, if an unbeliever's there, wow, that will be a sign to him. That 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 will convict him. He says, that's wonderful. I mean, of it, but assuming you're not all prophesying at the same time, because how on earth could anyone hear any one prophecy if you're all doing it at the same time? Now, also, um, he he goes on to say, but there's another way in which tongues is a sign. He, he almost seems to contradict himself on this one because he, he sort of starts off by saying tongues isn't a sign for unbelievers but prophecy is and then he says the opposite. He says tongues is a sign uh, but prophecy isn't. But of course what he's talking about, there is one way in which the gifts of, of tongues is a sign and it was a sign to Israel that they were rejected by God and replaced by the church. And Paul quotes from Isaiah 28, through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. And of course, what what that's referring to is that that was Isaiah prophesying to Israel. And remember in the law of Moses, the eventual judgment that came on Israel if they repeatedly rebelled and didn't repent was that they would be carted off into captivity that people of a foreign tongue, a language they didn't understand, would take them out of the promised land. And and so here's a prophecy from Isaiah saying that's going to be God's judgment on you. You know, through people of a strange tongue and a language you don't understand, I'll judge you because I'll take you away into captivity. And of course that happened to Israel in the Old Testament. But of course because Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah, When Paul's writing this, it's due to happen again. In AD 70, Israel was destroyed by the Romans and taken into captivity. So, therefore, tongues, in that sense, the fact of people speaking a language they don't understand, to that extent, the gift of tongues is a sign to Israel that Israel was under God's judgment and rejected by God and replaced by the church. Now, obviously, there will be a time when Israel will be back. But at the moment, Israel is rejected and replaced by the church. That will change in the future. But that's, that's the point. So when he then says tongues, then, are a sign for believers, but for, not for believers, but for unbelievers, prophecy, however, is for believers, not for unbelievers, and in saying that, he contradicts what he said earlier. What he's saying is that tongues is a sign for unbelieving Jews. A sign that they're rejected because they haven't uh, believed in Jesus as their Savior but if a Gentile unbeliever came in tongues would be madness to him he needs prophecy and so that's that that that's what what Paul is is saying there and then when we get down into verse 26 we, we now have Paul laying out the ground rules what he's done so far he's established there is no point speaking in tongues unless it's interpreted because no one can understand it. He says it's like blowing a fanfare. I mean, in the army, you, you, you have these fanfares, and different tunes are different orders to do different things. And he says if it's indistinct, no one knows what to do. So it's ridiculous to, to, to sound a warning that no one can understand. So he says, all this speaking in tongues without interpretation has got to stop. He says it's absolutely crazy. And now he really lays down the ground rules. But look what he says in verse 26. He says, what then shall we say, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction or a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. Now, look what he's saying. He's, he's writing to them, saying, now look, you're doing certain things wrong when you come together as a church. He's already praised them for using the format that he gave them. See? That's, it's commanded there in Scripture. But within the format, they're doing it wrong. So he's praised them for having a love feast, but he's corrected them for abusing it. He's praised them for having this completely open time together with no one leading it, with all three to take part, but he corrects them for their abuse of it. But remember, he says, when you come together, each one has. This, of course, is a nonsense in church services. You meet in buildings, there's lots of you and have a set format with someone leading from the front. That is the exact opposite to what the early church did. And and he says, look, each one of you are meant to be taking part. And this is, this is how we know what it was like when the early church came together. So. What we've got is the ground rules, and when you put that against what we saw in 1 Corinthians 12, where his whole push is each part of the body must be moving, and the parts of the body that could be more dominant must make sure that they're not holding back the other parts of the body that find it harder to step forward. So when he says each one has, it's against the background of 1 Corinthians 12. You can see the push here. But now he's saying, look, here's a ground rule. Everything must be done for the edification of the church. So, when the church comes together, it's like two sides of a coin all right you've got the love feast, one aspect of the gathering, our fellowship together, and the meal, and the other aspect is this time when the church when everyone is listening to everyone. Can you see what I mean where everyone's at, it's corporate attention all right and and here is where Paul's giving the ground rules for that and the ground rules for that is that everything must be done um, for the strengthening the edifying of the church so that that's not the time to swap. Tales of your favourite X Files episodes. See? It's not the time to talk about football. It's not the time to talk about a load of things that are fine if you talk chatting over the love feast. But it's not this, everything must be to spiritually build each other up. And remember that the whole and and it's interesting as well, nowhere, nowhere in scripture does it say that the reason for the church meeting is for worship. That is part of it, yes, a hymn, a praise, yeah. That is part of it. But nowhere does Scripture say the reason for a church meeting is to worship. The reason for a church to meet together, Scripture gives two reasons, and each of these must be present for it to be a genuine coming together of the church. Firstly, to edify each other. Because, look, we've got a week ahead of us. When a church comes together, you're facing a week in the sinful world. Having had a week in the sinful world, you need to build each other up. This is for recharging our batteries ready for the next week's service. And then the other reason we come together is for the love feast, to eat the Lord's, to break bread together. That that is why the breaking of bread must be the heart of when a church comes together. And so there's the first ground rule, everything must be uh, for the strengthening of the church. Now he says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, two, or at the most three should speak, and someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet. So he's saying, look, okay, it's okay if you've had one person speak in tongues, And then another, and then another. That's okay. They're not doing it at the same time. But once you've had two or three, then put a stop to tongues. You need to say, Lord, interpret for us. You need to hear what that prayer, what that praise was. Okay. And it's interesting, Paul deals with tongues and interpretation first, us bringing praise and worship and prayer to God. And then prophecy second, God speaks back. That's not a coincidence. That order isn't a coincidence there. Okay. And then... uh, you know, and then he says, "Look, two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said." So nothing, everything is tested, everything is submitted to the body for testing. You know, you know, I mean, you can't just come in and you know sort of give nutty prophecies and silly prayers and, and expect that it doesn't matter. You know, I mean, not not that anyone's going to jump on you for one mistake, but everything has got to be for edification. But he says, and if a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop. So if someone's holding forth on a revelation, that's wonderful. But if someone else has got something and they're kind of indicating it, let the first sit down and the other stand up. Now, there are two things there. The second ground rule for that corporate time when the church is, you know, kind of sitting in the circle and we're all concentrating on each other. The second ground rule is only one person speaks at a time. But also, isn't this incredible? You're bringing something, you you realize someone else has got something, you sit down and let them get up. Rather than, hey, I've got to do my bit and being dominant, it's all the time giving way to others. Because the more who participate, the better. And so here are the ground rules. And, and he said, look at this, and he says, you can all prophesy one by one so that all may be instructed and encouraged. Now again, what possible sense could that mean if, if the church, the early church, has services? You can all prophesy, you know, I mean, how many church services have you been to where you, along with everyone else, is free to prophesy? See, this is what shows us how it was when the churches came together. A church would come together in someone's house and they would have a time of building each other up, of praise, of worship, bringing a teaching, edifying each other. And it was literally, each one has. It was, you may all prophesy one by one. No one was leading it. Well, someone was. Jesus was leading it. This is a family get-together. It's a family get-together. Everyone taking part, building each other up. As the Lord leads, and uh, you know, and you know, then of course the other aspects, as you know, as we've already seen, the Lord's supper. You know, families when they get together, they eat together, and then he he goes on. He says, look, the spirits of prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Here's another ground rule: anything that is disorderly, chaotic. When you look at what goes on in charismatic meetings, it's the exact opposite. And there are people out there, they actually, they say that God works in a disorderly way because that offends the mind. There's actually that teaching. You know, when people start jumping up and down and making animal noises, they actually say it's it's God making us act irrationally because we rely too much on our intellect. Now, you can rely too much on your intellect, of course, but you don't throw your brains out. Either, and we're told to weigh and test everything, and that everything must be done uh, in, you know, peacefully and in order, and uh, and so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged, and um, you know, so so there you've got the basic ground rules. When you come together, all are free to take part, all right, but you always defer to someone else if they've got something to bring. Only one person speaks at a time, and. Um, Two or three tongues max without interpretation. Then you can start again. But there's got to be interpretation. You can't just keep going on. And then two or three prophecies and then stop. Because you've got to take it in. So a pause, but then you can keep going because Paul says you may all prophesy one by one. But everything's got to be done decently in order. The whole point is that we all take in everything that God, as it were, puts in the middle. See? So God puts something through Andy in the middle. might be a prayer. God puts something through... Vincy, in the middle, might be a prophecy. We all need to feed on that. Cheryl shares something the Lord's done for her during the week. We need to hear that, all of us. We're all concentrating, but then we shouldn't be sitting there thinking, wow, this is good, I'm really feeding on this. What are you going to bring to bless other people? That's the whole point. So we're not coming to receive, we're coming to give. But if we give, then we'll certainly know we can receive. Now, the la- last few verses, a um, bit difficult, and, uh, but let's just see this. You get this, as in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, must, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something they should ask in their, their husbands at home, for it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now, again, notice, I'll come on to dealing with that in a minute, but notice again, he says, look, did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. All this stuff about how you meet as a church, this isn't option. This is a command in Scripture. We have commanded in Scripture how to be as a church. It is just kind of unbelievable that 99.9999% of churches are actually the exact opposite. And and Paul says, look, if he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. And Paul says, look, if you've got someone who says, no, the law's telling me different. The law's leading me to do it differently. Paul says, look, did the word of God originate with you? I don't think so. So Paul says, this is how you do it. And this alone is how you're meant to do it. So, let's let, let's actually just quickly see this thing, women should remain silent in the churches. And indeed, you know, some, some churches, which really aim to be as biblical as they possibly can, their understanding of this is that when the church is together for that sharing time, the women don't speak. Okay. Now, my understanding is that the, the, the back in 1 Corinthians 11, we've already seen that Paul says the women should have long hair. And he says if they're going to pry or prophesy, they need long hair. To show that they're in submission to their husbands. So, Paul's not a twit. I mean, a few chapters earlier, he's taken it for granted that women pray and prophesy when the church gets together. So whatever this silence is, it can't be total silence, it's a limited silence. Indeed, earlier, uh, you know, he says, look, if you're speaking in tongues or, you know, kind of, uh, and there's no one interpreting, he says, sit down be silent. Or, you know, sort of like if there's, you know, you're, you're giving a prophecy and you realize someone else has got, so he says, sit down, let the first be silent. Now, when he says that, is he saying, right, okay, sit down, be quiet, I don't want to hear another word out of you ever when the church meets? No, he's just talking about appropriate silences at the appropriate times. So what would this silence be that is enjoined on the women, but not the men? Well, the verses we saw immediately prior is to do with the testing of prophecy. Now, if you think of it, the gift of prophecy was different then to how it is now. And what is different is this. We, Paul says, test everything. Now, what do we test everything by? Scriptures. What didn't they have? The Scriptures. They had the Old Testament. They had bits and pieces of the New Testament. They didn't have the New Testament in its entirety. So when prophets were prophesying, there's a bit of a... Pro- how do you know if their prophecies tie up with Scripture if you haven't got the whole of Scripture? And indeed, it's very possible that prophets back then actually prophesied Scripture. That's a possibility. So the point is, prophecy would have needed testing back then in a way that it doesn't need now. Because we just do it by Scripture. So therefore, I simply put it to you that the testing of prophecy in the early church, at this point in history, before the New Testament was fully compiled and available, required the testing of mature men, the elders. Now, a woman cannot be an elder, therefore in a situation where prophecy and doctrine needed to be tested that fell to the men. And in particular, not only, but it would have fallen to the elders as well. Not only the elders, but if there were, they would have really been, you know, kind of involved in that. And so therefore, by definition, when that was going on, the women would need to not be taking part in that. And indeed when Paul writes to Timothy, he says about women not teaching. Now, one of the things here is when you come together, each one has a a word of instruction. I don't think there's any problem with a woman just sharing a little thing, you know, like a bloke might. But also, we know from the early church that during the week, they continue daily in the Apostles' Doctrine, for example. So the push behind their Sundays is no one person was dominating. They didn't have sermons. They didn't have main teaching. But they did during the week. That's why we meet every week for Bible study. So, but that is, is the teaching that is really setting the direction for the church. And our understanding is that that's going to be for the menfolk. And that's why we all take it in turns to do the Tuesdays. We wouldn't be expecting the ladies to be doing that. And indeed, I don't believe there are any ladies here who would want to do that. And, uh, you know, so, so that's kind of, um, you know, my understanding of those difficult verses there. And Paul sums it up. He says, Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way." So where, where churches are coming together biblically, where they're abusing the fact that it's wide open for all to take part, the answer to that isn't services with leaders. The answer to that is get it right, use Paul's ground rules. And the answer to chaotic love feasts isn't junking them for bread and wine services like the early church fathers did. It's just getting them right. And the abuse of the gifts of the Spirit people going mad with the gifts of the spirit the answer to that isn't to ban the gifts of the spirit, the answer is just to get it right, to to minister the gifts of the spirit according to the rules we have laid down in scripture. Now in chapter 15 he deals with another subject that they've written to him about and it's various um, things to do with the subject of whether or not after death Christians are raised from the dead and given new bodies like Jesus was. And obviously what's happening is that false teaching has got in, and the Corinthians were getting all confused about it. And so they've written to Paul and one of the things that they said is, look, what's all this thing about the resurrection body and is there a resurrection? Is there, like you know, we're, we're getting all confused. Now, let me just read from uh, verses three, 3 to 11. He says, What I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. About falling asleep is that the body sleeps because it's raised. It wakes up later on. So this thing about falling asleep is of the body going into the ground, and you know, like the body sleeps. Obviously, when you die, you you know, you go straight to be with the Lord. You know, not sleep in you know, in the same way that we'll all go to sleep tonight. It says then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. That was the reference I gave earlier. Paul said he was an apostle born out of time because he wasn't one of the original twelve. But what they had, he got only later on. But he got it in heaven, not on earth. All right. It says, For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. So what Paul is saying, look, the whole essence is that Jesus was raised again from the dead. And what he goes on to, you know, to sort of emphasize to them, is he says, look, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then the gospel is actually not only entirely futile, but it is also a complete nonsense. And you get these you know, these sort of like, you know, modern theologians, don't you know, like the bishops in the Anglican Church. It's not just bishops in the Anglican Church, it's loads of Baptist ministers who you know, there's loads of Methodist ministers. This this idea that Jesus didn't rise from the dead physically, he rose again from the dead symbolically. You know, they say Jesus is alive but his bones are buried somewhere, you know. Now, I mean, you know, they are people who do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And they're not Christians. I mean, they might have been born again and they've fallen away, become apostate, but a lot of them just aren't Christians. You know, I mean, in, in times, you know, I mean, I remember once, like, you know, I, I hadn't thankfully done too much hobnobbing in my time, but I remember once I ended up at a lunch in Baptist house in um, up in London, and there were all these, all these top-notch Baptist ministers there. And I was, I was evangelizing the one I was sitting next to, because he wasn't a Christian, he'd never been a Christian. He was a radical, didn't know the Lord, didn't believe in the resurrection. There he was, big old Baptist minister at Baptist house, having lunch. You know, crazy. Paul says, look, if Jesus has not been raised again from the dead, not only is Christianity futile, but the gospel is actually a nonsense. And he says, and it means as well that we are believing and preaching a lie. He says, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, he says, not only are we barking mad, he says, we're actually moral. We're actually preaching something that isn't true me read, read verse 19 he says if only for this life we have hope in Christ we are to be pitied more than all men he's saying what no resurrection from the dead after we die he says well what on earth am I putting up with all this persecution for then what a nonsense absolutely ridiculous and he says look but it's not only the case that Jesus has been raised from the dead he says It's going to follow that everyone will eventually be raised from the dead. And he says, look, in Adam, all died. Because of Adam's sin, death came into the world because of one man. So because Adam sinned, physical death was the consequence. Remember, God has said to him, the soul that sins, it shall die. Physical death, spiritual death, physical death. And it's interesting, when God actually said to Adam, about, you know, sort of like, you know, don't don't eat the fruit of that tree. And he says, "In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die." That's how all the translations that we've got of the Bible translate it. And this isn't what it says in the Hebrew? In the Hebrew, it literally says, "In the day that you eat of it, dying you shall surely die." There were two deaths involved. Adam died spiritually on the spot; his spirit died, he was out of fellowship with God. That's why we have to be born again; our spirits brought back to life, so we can be in fellowship with God. So he died on the spot spiritually; the spirit died. But as a result of his spirit dying, eventually his body died as well. She'd get physical death. So, what Paul is saying, look, in Adam all died. But Jesus came to undo what Adam did. What Adam screwed up in the Garden of Eden, Jesus came to put right in the Garden of Gethsemane. And his death on the cross. From one garden to another. But the point was, Adam screwed it all up in a Garden of Paradise. Jesus put it all right in the midst of the most tremendous sufferings contrast between Jesus and Adam is unbelievable. And Paul says look, in Christ all will be made alive. And that includes unbelievers. And he says look, here's the order. He says Jesus first. all right? Jesus was raised again from the dead on the third day. All right? Jesus first. He says then believers. Now there are various subsections here because different groups of believers are going to be raised from the dead at different times. But it all basically kicks off from the rapture. So at the rapture, all the believers, all right, in the church age will be raised from the dead, okay? They'll actually come with Jesus from heaven, and when Jesus gets into the atmosphere, they will get their glorified bodies, their resurrection bodies. And all the believers alive on the earth at the time of the rapture, their bodies will be transformed, okay? Then, at the second coming, you get all the Old Testament believers who are raised from the dead, and all the martyrs who have died in the great tribulation. So you get these, these different you know, kind of subsections. But what Paul says, the order is Jesus first then believers and then eventually unbelievers. And of course at the great white throne judgment which is the end of human history the universe is destroyed then you get the great white throne judgment. And after that a new heaven, a new universe is created but at that point death and Hades give up the dead that are in and all the unbelievers are raised from the dead and they get bodies that cannot die and then they're thrown into the lake of fire for eternity that is the dreadfulness of the lake of fire that is why Jesus said their worm dieth, and the fire is quenched not because if you throw someone into a fire that's it, after a while it's all over the the burning has finished not in the lake of fire because they have bodies that cannot be destroyed that is the horror That is why their worm dieth not, and the fire will not be quenched. It will be eternal. It's horrific. It's absolutely unbelievable. That's why Jesus died on the cross, to save us from that. That is why I'm so glad that I'm a Christian. That is what I have been rescued from. So, Paul says, eventually, finally, unbelievers will be raised from the dead. And then he says, there will be no more death. Death has been overcome, because everyone will be alive. Death is when the Spirit leaves the body, so everyone will have bodies. Everyone will be alive again. And... He says, look, if there is no such being raised from the dead in the afterlife, then he says, if that's the case, then we might just as well eat, drink and be merry. You know this old eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. If that's all there is, he says, how daft to follow the Lord, because the Lord doesn't exist anyway. How daft to lead a holy life to worry about right and wrong. He says, look, just eat, drink and be merry you know, sort of like, satisfy your appetites and have as good a time as you possibly can. He says, that's that's the only sensible answer if all this resurrection stuff isn't the case. But he says, um, you know, but all this being raised from the dead stuff is the case. He says, it's actually true, that's what's going to happen. And then he gives his rather obscure, you know, sort of like, thing about people were being baptised on behalf of the dead. He says, if, you know... If if there is no being raised from the dead, then why are people baptised for the dead? Now, in that, we don't know what the practice refers to. It's certainly not a biblical one. And the fact that Paul refers to it doesn't mean that Paul's endorsing it. He's just saying, he's just giving it as an example. You know, I mean, because the point is he knows all the people he's writing to, even if they have one or two weird ideas about this, that, and the other. The one thing they did know is they have been taught that there's a resurrection to come after death. And they were absolutely right to be believing it. And Paul's saying, look, these people who are upsetting you, Forget them, ignore them. They're wrong. There is a resurrection um, after death, and um, and he, he then quotes from a, a Greek poet called Menander, and Menander wrote, "Bad company corrupts good character," and Paul quotes from Menander, and he says, you know, the, the, these 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 false doctrines that you're getting, the people who are feeding it all to you, just don't have anything to do with them. You know, they're corrupting you. Just just drop it. Don't have anything to do with, it, with them. And then in verse thirty-five to the end, he now deals with the nature of this body that we're going to get when we die or after death. And um, and he says that the body that you've got now is a seed, and it's a seed that when it's planted into the ground, which is ultimately what happens when you die, because your body decomposes and back into the old nitrogen cycle, and along come the worms and. Stuff like that, all jolly good. And he says, Your present body is a seed and it's going to get planted in the ground one way or the other. And he says that that will result in the harvest of the glorified body. So, what he's saying in the same way, if you put a seed in the ground, it dies. But because it dies, it produces something far more bigger and more wonderful than it was before it went into the ground and died. Jesus used that, didn't he? He said that he was going to be a corn of wheat that fell into the ground and died. produce a harvest and what paul's saying exactly the same way the present body you've got now is is going to die unless you are in that quite exceptional period of time when the rapture happens if, if, if you're alive when the rapture happens you won't ever die but outside of that you will and he says your body then will be the seed planted in the ground and the result of that is that a, a new life is going to come out of it and you're going to get a glorified body And he says, and there are different kinds of body. He says there's one type of body that humans have. He says there's another type of body that animals have. He says there's another type of body that fish have. And he says there's another type of body that birds have. And all this is straight biology, no problem at all. But then he goes one step further. And he says not only are there different types of body, but he says there are earthly bodies and there are heavenly bodies. And he quotes, you know, sort of demonstrates, he says, look, the sun, the moon, the stars, they are bodies in space. And of course, what he's saying is that each of these bodies that he's describing, be they the organic bodies of life on earth, or be they the bodies of the stars and the planets in space, the point is, each of the bodies that God gives each thing is fitted for its environment. The body of a fish is designed to swim in water. The body of a bird is designed to exist partially in the air. And the sun is designed to shine in space. The moon is designed to be there in space, as it were. And this is what he's saying. And then he says, look, your present bodies, the ones we've got now, are perishable. He says, they're going to die. He says, they are dishonoured. I.e. sinful, because sin resides in our body. He says our present bodies are weak, and they are. You know, you'll not be leaping tall buildings with a single bound in this life. And he says your present bodies are natural, i.e. they are of nature, the present world. But he says, but when you are raised, i.e. when you get the harvest of your glorified body, of which your present body is just going to be the seed, then that body is going to be the exact opposite of this body in all these regards. Why? Because it's designed to exist in the environment of the eternal state when a glorified universe would have been created and we'll be living in that and heaven will actually be located on planet Earth. So in that universe heaven, which is outside of this one, in that universe, heaven will be in the universe and it will be on planet earth. And it will be a new heavens and a new earth. It will be the very atoms will be glorified as it were. And that is the environment that our glorified bodies are going to be designed to um, exist in. And in fact in the new universe the only thing outside of it will be the lake of fire. And that is why the Bible says outside of the dogs." Outside of the immoral, outside of, see? that picture of outside and also outer darkness, that you know, illustration that Jesus used to describe lake of fire, because it will be outside and in eternity, everything us and the Lord and the you will all be in the universe together, all glorified, just like Jesus. And then he continues this contrast between adam and jesus we've already seen he mentioned it in regards that through adam all died and through jesus all be made alive and you'll remember that when we did romans a few weeks ago we saw that for other purposes paul was doing a comparison between jesus and adam in regards to matters of sin and salvation all right but here he does some more contrasting between jesus and adam in regards to the body and he said look adam was of the earth But Jesus, as the last Adam, remember Adam kind of means mankind, alright? You know, sort of so, although Adam was a literal person, his name meant man, alright? So, so what he was saying is that Adam, alright, was of the earth. Now, Jesus is the last Adam, okay? But Jesus is of heaven and is a life giving spirit. So, Adam originated on the earth, but Jesus originated in heaven. Now, Adam originated in the sense he had a beginning. Jesus had no beginning, he is God eternal himself. But Jesus came from heaven, as it were. Adam came from the earth. And what Paul says, in exactly the same way that we have borne the likeness of the man from the earth, i.e. Adam, the other thing Adam's name means is Adama, right, it's Hebrew for red earth, the clay. Literally, Adam was of the earth, we're of the earth, it's what we're made of. You know, the atoms in the ground are the atoms that make us up, right? And he says, in the same way that we have borne the likeness of the man from earth, we will one day, after death, and it will be at the rapture, we will bear the likeness of the man from heaven. So, Jesus is the next Adam. We bear all the characteristics of Adam. Mortal bodies, we're sinful, blah, blah, blah. But then we'll bear all the characteristics of the man from heaven. Jesus will be sinless. Will be glorified. Will be heavenly. That is what the body that we're going to have is going to be like. I want to actually read um, from, from verse 51. And he says, Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, i.e., not everyone's going to die. There is going to be a generation who are alive when this happens. We shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Would anyone like to guess what that word changed is in the Greek? Metamorphon, Metamorphosis. Jesus, when he was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration, same Greek word used there, transfigured. And Jesus, suddenly, his glory shone through, didn't he? He was there in his ordinary human body, and suddenly his glory flashed through. He was transfigured. That's what's going to happen to us at the rapture. But we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. And that, that word there, twinkling, is... The Greek word atom. You know the uh, the Greeks believed that the atom was the smallest indivisible unit in the universe. So, just like that, like that, like that. All right. And he says, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. This is when we get our glorified bodies at the rapture. You die today, go straight to be with the Lord. You're with the Lord in heaven, but your spirit. You ain't got a body, you're incomplete, but it's great. At the rapture, you will come with Jesus. And when Jesus arrives in the atmospheres, he doesn't land on earth at the rapture. He just comes to take the believers who are alive away. But all, all the believers who come with him from heaven, they'll get their glorified bodies then. And as soon as they've got theirs, those who are alive on the earth will be caught up and uh, blah, blah, blah. And he says, we will be changed for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. See, these bodies, they can't die. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? See, death has been overcome because eventually everyone will be alive again. There will be no more death. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And... uh, well, boom! that's it you know that is what it's going to be like in regards to our resurrection bodies and of course in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 Paul covers the same ground but more from demonstrating what's you know sort of like tying it in with the rapture and being caught up together and meeting the Lord in the air so this is the parallel passage to what he writes to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and, uh, and then he says therefore my dear brothers stand firm let nothing move you Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. So that's the opposite of what life would be like if there wasn't a resurrection from the dead. There's no resurrection from the dead. Life is meaningless and futile. All is vanity. But if this is true, then our lives are charged with meaning and significance and it's serving the Lord fully. So that is the opposite of the futility that would be the case if we weren't going to be raised from the dead when we die. Right now, just moving on to chapter sixteen, winding up here, and uh, he's um, arranging a, a, a collection for the church in Jerusalem, which was going through some very hard times. The Corinthians already knew about this because of Paul's previous letter to them, and um, so he's he's just giving them, you know, sort of like, you know, instructions about that. Um, just read verse two. He says, you know, in regards to this money that they're gonna raise on the first day of every week, each one of you shall set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. Saving it up so that when I come no corrections have to be made. That blows tithing out of the water, doesn't it? Tithing isn't New Testament at all. Tithing is a set tenth. Giving in the New Testament is entirely free will and it's in proportion to your income. So no, no tithing there. And um, and then, you know, sort of like you get various um requests and final greetings yeah we'll just read the last few verses just through to the end from chapter five he says after i go through macedonia i'll come to you uh, for i will be going through macedonia perhaps i'll stay with you a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever i go i do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit i hope to spend some time with you if the lord permits but i will stay on at ephesus until pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me so if you want to have an effective work for the Lord, you must have people opposing you. It's uh, part of the equation. If Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he's with you. <laughs> Be gentle with him. <laughs> bit, of a, bit of a timid old so was Timothy. Um, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord as I am. No one then should refuse to accept him. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos... I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Be on your guard. Stand firm in faith. Be men of courage. Be strong. Do everything in love. I mean, what throwaway two verses? I mean, if you could write volumes on that. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be men of courage. Be strong. Do everything in love. Crumbs. That shall keep us going until lunch tomorrow, I reckon. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. I urge you, brothers, to submit to such as these, and to everyone who joins in the work and who labours at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Archaicus arrived, because they have supplied what was lacking from you. They refresh my spirit, and yours also." Such men deserve to be recognised. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord. And so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. I'll read that again, because you're not supposed to say things like that. <laughs> if anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Come, O Lord. Now, obviously, that's not Paul wishing bad things on people. But it is saying that anyone who's not born again and following Jesus is, is, is cursed. It's, it's, it's a cursed thing to be in rebellion against God, and it's a dreadful thing to be in rebellion against God. It's... Um, it's very different from this kind of like we're supposed to flatter everyone all the time today, aren't we? Oh, you're not a Christian. Oh, lovely. Oh, right, yeah, okay. You're not a Christian. You're cursed. And then Paul would tell you how to be delivered from the curse. Like they were just a bit more, had a bit more backbone than we do. They were evangelical. We're evangelicals today. Okay. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Right, so that's uh, 1 Corinthians done with, and um, before too long we'll move on to 2 Corinthians. So, there you go.